0: where i see this market going is the games will become more video game like they'll become episodal iterative and level based and it'll become more addictive all the current venues out there so far have taken the model of a driving range game or a golf game and tried to create a video game built upon that. Where we're differing is we're here in the heart of Xbox and PlayStation land and mobile game land. We're going with that direction. We're gonna take video game quality PS4, PS5 type of games and downgrade them to become driving range games. That will be a major differentiator in what we're doing with the technology. You hit the ball and you look up as the ball is flying through the air and you see a tracer following it through the air and it lands in a target. And you see explosions everywhere with points flying up in the air. So that is what's called a glassesless AR experience. That's the direction I think is coming to this scenario in the future and what we've been working on as a solution for several years.
1: Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks so much for joining us, and please subscribe to the show so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and you can enter our latest golf product giveaway. Before we get started, I wanted to thank one of our supporting partners, Golf Genius Software, for helping bring you this episode. Golf Genius software powers tournament management at thousands of private clubs, public courses, resorts, and golf associations all over the world. So if you're a golf course operator who wants to do less work, have more fun, and generate more revenue, check them out online at golfgenius.com. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is David Greyshaber, who is the Chief Information Officer at Gamers Golf. David is a socially conscious entrepreneur and patented inventor. Innovative lifelong technologist who is passionately and highly skilled in executive management. And he's also an accredited investor with a successful career reflecting more than 28 years of company building, sustainability, facility design, development, and operations with large scale construction project management. If that's not enough already, David also has a proven track record within the data center and IT data networks and internet areas. Today, like I said, we're going to focus on the golf entertainment sector of what David does. Let me just tell you quickly about Gamers Golf, which will be the first golf entertainment center in Washington State, and their new 40,000-square-foot facility in Tacoma, which I believe, and I'll have David confirm this in a minute, is currently under construction that will attract customers to experience great cuisine and beverages, along with playing golf-related games for entertainment, all in a safe outdoor environment. So, whoa, that was a lot. That was a mouthful there, David. So, hey, David, thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the the Mod Golf Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. It seems like you found my LinkedIn page and uh, read it verbatim. I did. Well, you know what? I, I did add a
1: sprinkle in some other things there, but I, it's like, where do I cut out here? Everything is so awesome with what you actually do, but I am going to distill it all the way down to get us started here to kick things off, David. So before we talk about gamers' golf and golf entertainment and also architecture and sustainable building design, which, as you know from our previous conversation, David, is something that I'm passionate about as an architect and sustainable designer. I want to start with this. Uh, also, on your LinkedIn page, I did read this, that back in the day, you published one of the first 50 websites on the internet. So that's got my curiosity going here. So I'd love for you to open our conversation by telling us that story.
0: Sure. I was a MIT potential candidate and scored an 89% on the entrance exam and got a half scholarship to MIT, but I could not afford to live in Massachusetts. So I ended up going to Ohio State University where I dual majored in business and in computer science. At our time in computer science lab, we had these wonderful Cray computers with little bubbly uh, cooling fluid going through them. And a gentleman walks in and says, hello, my name is Mr. Bernards-Lee from CERN. And we have this little application we would like you to try that we're building. You in Michigan and Pennsylvania are already connected together. We would love to connect your computer systems together. And it turns out that the application was called the World Wide Web. Uh-huh. So we placed this onto the servers. We gave it a try, and everyone in our class looked at each other and said, if this can do what he's saying it could do, we are all going to be in a great spot in the world. And it's going to be collaboration. Everyone's sharing information. This is going to change the world. This is great. So I went ahead and threw up a page that was done in Pascal markup language. Uh-huh. Uh, at the time, because there was no HTML, at the time it was still being written. And it was a black and green page that was a piece of real estate. And from there, I ended up having the largest real estate brokerage company on the internet because I was the only one. We were the first to do a real-time database interaction with a website, and we were the first to do credit card processing online.
1: Amazing. Um,
0: I look back and say I made the biggest mistake of my life. I could have went and put up a picture of a naked girl and been a multi-billionaire.
1: There you go. You could have, you know what, but but you didn't because being the ethical person that you are, apparently, uh, you decided to go a different direction. So, hey, I don't know if you've got this, but in the show notes, I would love to, as an image, show a screenshot of your first website do you actually have that you must have that you must have a screenshot I, try and find
0: it. I, I do have it somewhere it just may be on a floppy disk somewhere <laughs> <laughs> An old five and a
1: quarter inch disk back in the day I remember that yes formatting yeah. disks So my
0: two other partners that were sitting there with me when we were testing out the World Wide Web for the first time, one went on to create CompuServe, and the other one created Oh, Oh, those
1: little things. Okay.
0: Two little small companies. So I dropped out my last quarter because when they asked me that wonderful question of, Mr. Greyshaber, what are you going to do with your life? You can graduate with an MBA and go and make $27,000 a year or quit now and make $25,000 a year. And I looked at her and said, I'm already making $75,000 a year working part-time and taking 22 credit hours. And I think her jaw dropped to the floor at that point. Next day, I quit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sealed the deal right there. Absolutely. (laughs) So there's a lot between then and where you are now. So to try to navigate that first, let's bring it back to, well, you ended up in San Francisco and Silicon Valley for quite a few years working there, doing things both in the golf entertainment space and and beyond in the tech space. So why don't you give us a bit of a precursor before you started the co-founder of Tech Golf and also the co-founder of Swing that has led you to your involvement with Gamers Golf. Can you give us a precursor, the foundation that built up to getting involved in the golf technology and golf entertainment space as that foundation for you to build all those relationships and all that knowledge and experience that led you to where you are now.
0: So for 20 years from the time I dropped out of university, I continued in the networking space, in the physical networking space from token ring to ethernet to fiber optic, and then satellites and sonar, radar. We played with a little bit of everything, but it was all based around the internet aspect of it. I ended up owning a 400,000 square feet data center with offices in Sapporo, Japan and Manila, Philippines. We were essentially outsourcing Japanese customers to America because it was 50 to 75% cheaper with 32,000 customers at one point. So it was a big operation. And having spent a lot of my time in Japan, most of my business deals were done on the golf course. I did not know how to play golf at first, but I found out that if I wanted to get business done in Japan with the top executives in the country, the only way it was going to happen is if I learned how to play golf. Uh. Eventually, I married a woman from Okinawa. Her father was a scratch golfer, and I wanted to get to know my father-in-law more, so I ended up learning to play golf. In the end, a wonderful term came out called cloud computing. Essentially, it was just a marketing term for the same thing that we've already been doing for 20 years already. It had raised about $5 billion at a time, and the data center business was either going to become a cloud computing business, and we continue on with that under a different name, or merge or liquidate our assets. So at the time I was playing more golf than I was actually working in the data center business. (laughs) So I decided to just liquidate the assets of the company at that point and create a golf company. I had a decent exit from the space. And at least now I could explain my grandmother how I was making money. So the first thing I did was I went to Google and they were just coming out with the Google Glass product at that time. We started working on a co-branded product called iCaddy, which was a augmented reality style of GPS and rangefinder built into the Google Glass.
1: Right. right. Give give us some context. So
0: what year is that we're talking now? That was about 10 years ago from today. Okay. All right. Great. So 2010, 2011. At that time, Google then decided that after spending $2 billion, they could not figure out how to deal with the privacy issue in bathrooms with this product and decided to pull the plug. At that point, I was already looking into golf entertainment centers. I had spoken to the brothers in England who had created the company Top Golf. Mm-hmm. They said that they were just opening an, in America at this point, and I was to contact the American connections here and deal with them. After speaking with them for several months, the goal was to bring $12 million to the table to build a venue within the Silicon Valley area, right in the heart of the technology area. This would have been a coup at the time. Right. We spent about six months discussing this. And in the end, I asked them what I was going to receive out of this. And their comment back was, we'll make you a general manager. I said, well, I'm not really interested in a six-figure salary. I'm already making that. And their response was, it's not even a six-figure salary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully more than the $25,000 a year out of Ohio State that you were going to make. Maybe it was like $28,000. There you go. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um 27, so with that i said guys this is unrealistic i could take 12 million dollars and turn it into 100 million in three or four years in technology why would i want to belittle myself and do this and they're like well that's all we can offer we don't do joint ventures we don't do partnerships it's our way or the highway and that is how i got into the interest of golf entertainment centers I looked at the business model and I realized after looking at multiple business models within the technology, I was a great predictor of about half a decade to a decade out of what was coming next. I used that same knowledge in analytics idea to look at the golf entertainment business and saw this as a home run. This was going to change golf. I knew it was going to change golf. There was no way it couldn't. The business model was sound. Every aspect about this thing was sound. So I opened Tech Golf and went out to the Silicon Valley Sand Hill Road guys that I've raised money from in the past. And all of them said, you love this idea. Can you remove the building? (laughs) We Uh, don't like real estate.
1: (laughs) Well, most of them being software and SaaS guys, right? It's like, nope, that doesn't scale and that's expensive.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So when I told them there was not a chance of making a 10,000% return, uh, none of them were interested at that point. So I spent the next year essentially looking for funding through traditional sources that I've used in the past to pretty much go nowhere. Right. I met a gentleman named Robert Luciano who had just sold his company for 220 million in Reno, Nevada. Who had a very similar experience. He called up Top Golf and went through the whole scenario with them of Let's build one of these in Reno. I'm cash rich. I don't care what it costs. I just want to build one for my friends. They got to the end of the story and he asked what he's going to get out of it, and they said, "We'll make you a general manager." <laughs> Well, at least it wasn't you. It's like so you weren't special, right? You weren't special. With the ego. And Robert was like, Did anyone in your company actually do research on me? I'm a Forbes top one hundred executive. I'm the highest paid CTO in the world currently, making mid seven figures. And I just sold my company for two hundred and twenty million. And you want me to come work for you as a general manager in a building that I'm paying for? (laughs) Wow. So that didn't work out too well. No. Picked up the phone and called down to his IP department and said, find out what patents they have and let's file equal and opposite patents. So well, Topgolf filed the patent for the targets. Bob went ahead and filed the patent for RFID golf ball separator because it's very similar to a slot machine separating out coins. He also filed a patent for the overall technology. So the utility patent describing the whole golf entertainment business.
1: God, so the entire system then filed, filed as a patent. Okay. Yeah.
0: Correct. He went on and filed many more. And when I met him, we filed another two dozen patents in the sector in the RFID golf ball space Ending with 3D Doppler radar in a bay was our final patent that we filed. Ten of those issued, I think, and 17 are still pending somewhere around there of new patents that they piled on. Unfortunately, Bob had a massive stroke at one point, and he had to exit this space because he could really no longer pay attention.
1: Got it. So it sounds like... From over 10 years ago to where you are now, you're still very bullish on this space, even though obviously right now when we're recording this episode, COVID is with us. So obviously whether it's Top Golf or some of the other smaller players, and we'll get into them in a minute as far as the competitors are not so fast followers in this space. Obviously this year in 2020 has not been good for them, but things will come back. So I, I do want to hear about the future, but you know, talk about the last couple of years, then you what I understand as far as you're the co-founder of not only Tech Golf, but also the CIO of Spot Golf and also with Swing, which sounds like it's led to, if I get this correctly here, David, that it's really led to the culmination of what you are building now
0: with Gamers Golf. That is correct, Colin. I have this motto and from the Silicon Valley, fail fast for one. Innovate or die is another one from the Silicon Valley. And the third one is you can never fail if you don't quit. So, I've never failed. I just move forward to the next project. Eventually, I will make this work somehow, no matter what. The next stage was I joined a group called Spot Golf. They were a group of people who have all been threatened by lawsuits for one type or another from Top Golf. I received my uh, 67 page legal threat at one point, and they had all received theirs at one point or another, trying to move into Top Golf's white space. I can understand as a company wanting to secure that, but there's going to be competitors. They spent a lot of money fighting off first movers into this market, and I congratulate them for holding the lead as long as they have. But there are others coming that, that will make a difference in this sector. With Swing, I met the CIO, the ex-national director of operations, the ex-building director, and the ex-CIO Top Golf, and we all formed a company called Swing Golf. That's Tom LaPlante, is it? That is Tom LaPlante.
1: There we go. Good guy. Um,
0: Unfortunately, the market still was not there yet. People still could not grasp that this was going to make a massive business difference to the golf industry at this point. There were people that are finally caught on and said, okay, this makes sense. We see it, but we're not willing to risk $20 million on a venue on something that may or may not work. So, what I did was, I, me and Tom brought together the whole team that have built Top Golf from about $170 million in value to about $1.7 billion in value and said, Here you go. Here's the team that did this. <laughs> they are the ones that can actually do it for us as well. Unfortunately, we couldn't get it to work in the end. And I moved to the Seattle area. From the Silicon Valley area, where it's one third of the video game industry, one third of the VR, AR, and one third of the crypto industry is in the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. These were the people I would be hiring anyway to build the software and the back end and the technology stack for our venues. Mm-hmm. Once I arrived here, I met a gentleman named Michael Givens. Michael is a renowned PGA coach here. He's managed multiple country clubs. He's a course record holder, scratch golfer, and he owned a driving range for the past 20 years. Mike saw his income shrinking on the driving range business and knew at some point he was going to have to either pivot over to a much larger, much more refined type of golf entertainment center or exit the business because the business was slowly dying. We met and decided that we would uh, team up on the project at Gamers Golf. That is where we're at today. And we knocked down the building and started construction, 23% complete, and then COVID hit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So people know the context. So this is in Tacoma, Washington, which is just south of Seattle, of course, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. Well, I've spoken to so many people on the podcast that are in this golf entertainment space, and of course, if you know, I've had quite a few of the top golf people on before, and with my company, Reviver Sport Entertainment, we've done consulting and design work for them in the past with Top Golf. Had uh, many conversations with several people, but I've got to say here, David, you probably have more insight and intel, the history and the internal workings of anybody that I've met so far. So. This is really intriguing me. So, I really want to dig into this more because you have more insights. Than most of why this business space is still frothy, where a lot of people will say, well, maybe it's saturated now that Top Golf has 40 to 50 venues in the US, real estate now, all, all of the low hanging fruit on the real estate available has already been taken up. There's other competitors in the space that we'll talk about in a minute here. Is the revenue or the margins getting squeezed and going down? And is the market becoming too saturated? So, obviously, the answer for you is hell no. So, I'd, I'd love to hear what you see as even the next two five, 10 years especially with your background in ar vr mixed reality all these other things of what top golf has done and what you plan to do with gamers golf to take it to like the next level as a 10x type of experience and value for your patrons
0: and consumers so where do you see the ultimate value and what do you got on your mind Well, first off, Topgolf's IPO proposition prior to the COVID, so pre-COVID, was approximately a $4 billion company, which is exactly what we predicted, which would be somewhere in the nature of 3X multiple for their venue value, for their CapEx. That was about to go through, and then, as you know, COVID twisted 2020 into a weirdness. And also, at the same time, 2020 would have been the first year that... Off-course play actually had more visitors in attendance than on-course play. On-course has set about 24 to 25 million people for off-course play. Yes. With about 23 to 24 million for on-course play. So this would have been a first time these entertainment sector has really taken off. And all of this has happened with 65 venues in the market. Right. right. There are 12,500 golf driving ranges alone and almost equally amount of golf courses in America. So all of those 24,000 venues equal the same of about 70 venues of the entertainment space. Now, that entertainment space also includes people like Flatiron Pub and Pop Strokes and these other smaller venue and one-offs and other types of venues, not just the large golf entertainment centers such as Topgolf. So Topgolf has proven that this model is expandable. And it's going to keep growing. If they would have went with the IPO, the next piece of the process would have been an official Wall Street valuation of the market. And everyone was predicting that it'd be somewhere in the $10 billion mark for the U.S. alone. Wow. That leaves plenty of growth in the sector for the next decade. There are numbers from anywhere between 200 and 300 venues that are viable within America alone. Of all sizes, and we're just getting started. So it's taken Top Golf almost 20 years to get to 63 venues. And it's probably going to take another decade before we're even close to anything that's considered a saturation.
1: Right. Right. And the stats, I know they're from 2018, but at that time they had over 10 million visitors and there are over 40 venues at that time. And more than half of them identify as non-golfers, never picked up a golf club before or play like once or twice a year. And I know you see this too, this off course opportunity, this experience is that gateway to golf, to Introduce people a much larger market segment by ten to twenty times of everybody, from eight-year-old kids to eighty-five-year-old grandmothers. That everybody can get out and play and have a good time and be social.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that always describes my first experience at a Top Golf. Exactly, I went to a Top Golf. I saw a large crowd of people, and I walked up, and I'm like, "What's happening? Everyone's cheering and everyone's having fun." I'm like, "Well, what's going on?" There's this semi-pro out there playing with his 79-year-old grandmother, and they're tied with two shots left. I'm like, how is that even possible, knowing golf? And someone told her early on that if she just hits the ball and dribbles it across the ground and it falls in the target, she gets scored. Points. And she was doing it perfectly.
1: She's hacking, was the, hacking no the system. <laughs>
0: the back trying to get the high score. And he missed the last shot. She dribbles it in and wins by one point in the end. Everyone's cheering and screaming. And they bought everyone beers. And it was the funniest thing ever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the most incredible social experience in golf I think I've ever been around.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good. And that works for everybody. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you this since you said now you're in the Seattle area, one of the draws for you was. Is the fact of the AR, VR market there as far as crypto and other elements of the, of the tech sector that you are looking to draw upon to help build your stack, as you said. So I'm very curious to hear of what you can tell us. Obviously, there's certain things under an NDA you can't reveal right now as trade secrets, so you don't want to tip your hand too much here. But where do you see the real opportunity to take the guest experience to that next level in a venue, just as far as that level of engagement and interactivity as compared to what Top Golf is relied on? for years with their targets and their RFID balls to what can go on, especially when you fold in the potential of mixed reality in the the gaming experience?
0: Well, I've been an open book coming from the Silicon Valley. I tell people 99% of the stuff that I, I talk with people about, they're never going to do or utilize anyway, no matter how much I believe it. I have seen Topgolf utilize a couple of my ideas from our previous pitch decks that we've thrown out and our Performa numbers and everything. But I'm a complete open book. I know how long it'll take someone to develop something and I can talk about it now and and they can start throw every dollar they have at it and still won't get to it. And by the time we are ready to deploy it, because we have a big head start. Right. 5-Check was the perfect proof that you could throw as much money at a project as you want and still not make it a success. So where I see this market going in the future is not with RFID. That's a dying technology. Even Topgolf knows that. It's, it's yeah. definitely going to be with 3D Doppler radar because it is agnostic to the environment. It doesn't care if it's dark, light, snowing, raining. And the accuracy of it, we've got it down to about two golf ball wide accuracy. So about four centimeters at 250 yards. And that's about as accurate as anyone can see. Especially if 50% of our venue is non-golfers, they're never going to be able to tell if this thing lands one foot or four centimeters. Right, Um, right. But the way that I see this going it playing out is the games will become more video game-like. They'll become episodal and iterative and level-based and become more addictive. All the current venues out there so far have taken the model of a driving range game or a golf game and tried to create a video game built upon that. Where we're differing is we're here in the heart of Xbox and PlayStation land and mobile game land. We're going with that direction. We're going to take video game quality PS4, PS5 type of games and downgrade them. To become driving range games. That will be a major differentiator in what we're doing with the technology. And where do I see this going next? I think the idea of having displays in the bay will die off over time. People will log in via their cell phone only. There will be touchless, obviously, because of COVID. You walk up, you stand at a dress, you look up in the air, you see your statistics floating in the air in front of you. There may be a coach standing there that's saying, "Hey, you know, hit the ball and let's see what you got." And you hit the ball, and you look up as the ball is flying through the air, and you see a tracer following it through the air, and it lands in a target, and you see explosions everywhere with points flying up in the air. So that is what's called a glassesless AR experience, and right. that's the direction I think is coming to this scenario in the future, and what we've been working on as a solution for several years. Well, you and
1: I are kindred spirits because our previous conversation that we had with our company, we're developing something similar to that as a putting game with a putting pod rather than a hitting bay. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, as I said, kindred spirits on on that is seeing where the future is going here and pulling out the best elements of gaming and esports. And people just love that integration of leaderboards, real-time leaderboards. And you look why still to this day, why bowling is still popular, even though they've made that more interactive. But people just love that competition, whether you're a lousy bowler like me or whether you're a good bowler. And I think that's one of the secret sauces that Top Golf has managed to harness. And it sounds like you're poised to take that to the next level, which is pretty exciting stuff there, David.
0: Thank you, sir. We are proud of what we're building and we are looking forward to being the first golf entertainment centers in the Washington state.
1: I know you only take it one step at a time. As an entrepreneur, you've had the experiences that you have to have your beachhead. You have to prove it out, get it right, and then start to scale that up. So I'm assuming that you're seeing across the US, even across North America, up in Canada here where I am, and other markets back to Japan, where are going full circle, back where you met your wife, and between the golf and hospitality culture of Japan and South Korea, especially, I think those would be incredible markets for what you're proposing here.
0: Agreed. The key high technology areas happen to be the same areas that are the most popular for golf as well in the world. Mm-hmm and so the overlay of those will be significant if you go to japan or korea currently south korea and you go to a driving range their driving ranges are full of technology what they don't have is the social aspect which topgolf brought about we went over and visited to the golf ball companies and the automatic ball dispenser companies and equipment companies in korea We found that they just didn't get how this social aspect works. They couldn't see it in their mind or understand why it would be popular. I'm sure they do now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious since you uh, definitely have your ear on the ground for the last decade or so in this market. Why do you think Top Golf has not entered the South Korean or the Japanese market? Is it once again perhaps that hubris that they have that they want to do it all themselves, or they just want whatever partner they have? They basically want to make them general managers at a Korean facility. Like it seems to me there should be Topgolfs or some competitor already there years ago. Why, why do you think that is?
0: Correct. You've hit it perfectly, Colin. I think it is the hubris from what we've heard multiple times is Topgolf tried for a good six years to enter the Chinese market without much success. That was strenuous on them. They now have a contract in China, but they still don't have anything under construction. Mm-hmm. Japan was a different issue. Japan is very limited in space, and their philosophy is, well, all of our driving ranges, we have all of the good ones, are already automated. We already have games in every other bay. We have automatic tea boxes in every bay. We have food and beverage why do we need Top Golf?
1: Yep, valid if it's only that incrementally smaller of a difference than really what, what's going to shift people from one to the other and as, as you said you spend lots of time there more than I have real estate is expensive especially in urban areas and even suburban areas and if not non-existent to build something like this even though top Topgolfs and I'm sure with Gamers Golf your designs you plan on shrinking them down smaller and smaller so that your revenue per square foot only goes up too to make them even more efficient as far That's as the correct. business model the only, yeah. the
0: only way these can work in Korea or Japan is to grab an existing driving range knock it down and start over from scratch. because that's the only way you can get a piece of land of that size. And then it may not be of adequate size and maybe a half length. but bringing the whole social aspect into this, once it's built, they'll get it. And once they've visited a top golf in America, they get it.
1: Right. Wow. We've kind of bounced around to quite a few different things, but uh, I do want to touch on this. This has been a, really a deep dive into seeing through your lens of experience here, David, of what's going on in the golf entertainment space. So thank you for that. But I cannot let our conversation finish without talking about your passion and love for architecture. In fact, you and I—the reason you popped up on my LinkedIn feed was you supported an article from ArchDaily that talked about design in the golf entertainment and golf facilities space. So I saw that. So I realized, hey, you're you're into this design thing. So that's when I reached out to you. So I want to talk to you a bit about that. And maybe we can just talk about how design, physical design and also experiential design adds so much value to what we're doing. And so many people out there still dismiss the value of design. So I'd like to get your thoughts on on that and the power of design thinking.
0: I think that a lot of people actually dismiss it. It's it's quite incredible because part of the excitement of going to a new golf course or a new country club or something is seeing the clubhouse, seeing the amenities that they have at the venue. I've been disappointed for about the last, well, about the last 10 years or so, seeing that so many of these were so similar in look and feel. And then recently, as you mentioned, I found the Arc Daily that shows a whole new slew of country clubs and new golf courses that are opening that are pushing the boundaries of lead architecture type of design or sustainable design with the philosophy that golf is a green sport. So as an industry, we should be green company in a green clubhouse, and it's been widely accepted. Some of the most amazing architecture is now starting to make its way into the golf course clubhouse building sector with really cool, innovative designs, and including integrated in hotel rooms and floating ponds that are used, uh, filled from rainwater that are used for waste and green water for watering the actual venue, but also used within the actual hotel itself of. Some of them have complete green roofs where they're growing their own food. It's a direction that we have to go as a species if we're going to survive on the resources that are left here on this planet. And I'm, I'm happy to say that the industry that we're in is moving in that direction.
1: It is. And I'm looking at the article right now. is written by a gentleman named Eric Baldwin. I think I'm going to reach out to him because my background in architecture and sustainable design also, I think i got to do an episode talking to him about all the good things that you have led me on to to expand that conversation. And speaking of expanding conversations, I do want to finish up here because you and I are now going to jump on a Zoom video call that we're going to record and then post on the Mod Golf YouTube channel. And I would like to dig deeper into the conversation of sustainable design and the power of design to, to shake it up a little bit so we're not replicating or duplicating what we're talking about here. So to finish things up here, David, first of all, thanks so much for all your insight. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Could you please let our listeners know where they can find out more about
0: Gamers Golf? Absolutely. We can be found on the web, mainly at gamers.golf. That's with a Z. And also, the easiest place to find us is we're available on LinkedIn. Those would be the two locations to seek us out. You can also find the construction process on our Facebook page at gamersgolf.com.
1: Excellent! Boom! There it is. Uh, as I always do in the show notes, and also in your bio that we will create here for your podcast episode, I will include all the links that you just mentioned, also with some visuals. And hopefully, you can dig up that black and green screenshot of your first website. I would love to see that. So I'm going to task you with that, David. That you can provide that to me in the next couple of days. That we can get that on the show page. Also, that would be great. So with that, David. Hey, I, I want to thank you today for being a guest in the Mod Golf Podcast and. I'm I have a feeling this is one of many conversations that we're going to have. So thanks for joining us today and take care. We'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you, Colin. Have a great day.
1: So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Greyshaber, entrepreneur, founder, investor, and chief information officer at Gamer's Golf. If you'd like to learn more about David, visit our episode show page where we've included website links and although David unfortunately wasn't able to find that floppy disk with the black and white green image of his first website design, we have included lots of other additional content. Speaking of additional content, I invite you to check out the bonus Zoom video interview David and I recorded that is posted on the ModGolf YouTube channel. The video link is also on the episode show page and please subscribe to the ModGolf YouTube channel while you're there. If you leave a comment, I promise to respond. Please join me next time when my guest is Charles Dillahunt, PGA of America's strategic adjunct to the CEO and CPO, when we'll talk about vendor match and how golf can become more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor partners, Golf Genius Software and British Columbia Golf for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from golf's brightest innovators and influencers we're also launching a bunch of golf product giveaways over the next couple of months, starting with some beautiful, high-performing Edison wedges. To enter, simply sign up to our newsletter at www.mod.golf, follow us on either Twitter, Instagram, or our LinkedIn page, or our YouTube channel, and reply stating, enter me in the Mod Golf giveaway contest. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you'd like to listen in. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Bye for now.